So I hope you guys enjoyed last night. I know it was like a lot said and um, a lot to take in. And you have to sit with stuff for some time and get to the place where you can really disclose stuff to yourself as to secrets and as to, you know, who's the grabbers in your life and the stuff that you need to release that doesn't always come you hearing it the first time. Oftentimes you have to sit with it and really examine what was said and how it pertains to you so that you then can walk out different. So today I am going to deal with if my people will, then I will. And this thought started for me Tuesday night after I taught. I had said something in class and as I was driving, things just kept coming to my head and stuff was dropping on me because this wasn't originally what I had planned on teaching, but it seemed right. So I went home and I further developed the thought. But um, the main thing that was on my mind was that how have we missed the simple truths of God? Why have we complicated God to be something that we really can't grasp? Why have we made it out of just everyone's common reach? When he came to everyone, then that means he could be embraced by everyone, and his teachings were at the level of everybody. But somehow everything got complicated, and I can't understand simple words that are on a page. And I think that that wasn't how it was supposed to be. Somehow we got man involved, and he flipped the whole thing around and took it from God and put it on himself. God's word is clear and concise because he's not trying to trick us or mislead us. It's not like hidden messages between the words. It's just what he said is what it is. When we try to make it more than the words he has given, we complicate things to our own demise. And I wondered why healing is often so out of reach for us. Why are we still so burdened down when he said healing was ours? Why is surrender and faith so out of our reach. Why is it so hard for us to grab onto faith? Because everything in his word backs up for us to have faith in him. But that seems to be one of the hardest things for us really to grab. And surrender is like, you know, almost a cuss word. Because I don't really want to just put it all at the altar. I don't want to give you everything of me because that just seems too much. I feel like you're asking too much of me. And the scriptures began to come to my remembrance, and it got even clearer. As it got clearer, excuse me, I was more amazed at the simplicity of each word. The answers are in the word, in plain view for all of us to see. I realized that the biggest problem is that we want to be in control. We do not want to give control over to God. Even our supposed righteous living is a way for us to stay in control. I can stop sinning. I can stop doing this and that. And then I flaunt my efforts in front of God. And I flaunt what I've done in front of man. My restraints become, look at me, God. Look how much I'm doing. And very rarely do we give all honor and praise to God. It becomes something that I then get to stay in control with. I am actually just self-righteous. 
I have used a look of holiness to keep me in control. I want God to be impressed with this so he doesn't ask anymore. When I hear that he wants more, then I get mad. Because really, it's a little irritating to know that I haven't done it all. That while I haven't surrendered everything, that you're telling me I got fatal secrets, that I got all this stuff going on, stuff under my tent, I didn't dug it up and buried it. But I did everything I was supposed to do. Why do you want more and more and more of me? I don't really want to go any further. I don't want to move out of my comfort zone because my comfort zone is my control room. Wherever I like to stay, whatever makes me feel okay, that's where my control is. When do we surrender to God? Abandon all we know and are comfortable with. When do we want him over ourselves? When do we start believing that we are not smarter than God? Please know that when you don't submit, you are saying that I know more than you. I have a plan that is far better than yours. This is when I realized that the devil has been using the same devices since his first seduction. The devil has perverted the church the same way he perverted Adam and Eve. So if we look at Genesis 3, 1 through 5, it says the serpent was clever more clever than any wild animal God had made. He spoke to the woman, do I understand that God told you not to eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, not at all. We can eat from the trees in the garden. It is only about the tree in the middle of the garden that God said, do not eat from it. Don't even touch it or you'll die. The serpent told the woman, you won't die. God knows that the moment you eat from that tree, you'll see what's really going on. You'll be just like God, knowing everything, ranging all the way from good to evil. When the woman saw that the tree looked good, sorry, the tree looked like good eating and realized what she would get out of it, she knew everything. She took and ate the fruit and then gave some to her husband and he ate it. See how the devil, the first thing he asked was, what do you know? He had to see where was she at? Did she really have the information? Once he knows what you know, that's when he gets to trick you. This is how we often get tricked because we do not know enough about God. It is believed from theologians that God spoke to Adam and gave him this directive. And then Adam gave it to Eve. So in this case, she not only second doubted God, or second guessed God, but she also second guessed Adam, believing that maybe he got it wrong. Maybe Adam missed the story. Maybe he didn't say just that one tree. You don't want to rely solely on what people tell you about God. You must read it and have God speak to you directly. Then it is much harder to be tricked. When you have direct knowledge, when you sat down and you read something and you said, oh, I know I got this. People can't deceive you. But when it's like, oh, well, yeah, they said, and that's who they said God is, and, well, that's what the pastor said, and, well, that's what that sister quoted to me, then I get to spin it. 
And devil's like, oh, okay, you don't really know that much. So let me just throw that in. What you really know? Oh, he didn't say that. Then this devil proceeds to completely contradict the knowledge of God and to question his motives. God isn't really on your side. He wants to block you from greatness with all his rules. God didn't mean that. He actually meant the opposite. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. But the devil says, no. He means just look like you have faith. Come to church, sing, dance, speak in the lingo. Then God is pleased. And we've been deceived again. The Bible says, don't make men trees. The devil says, no. He meant to worship the man. He is the one who God sent to save you, isn't he? Make him bigger than me. The Bible goes on to say, perfect love cast out fear. The devil's like, no, let fear be your guide. Let fear make you act right. Make fear be the thing that makes you want to get to heaven. God cares more about the outside appearance than the heart. See, that's what the good book says. But the devil's like, no. Just straighten it out on the outside. Look the part. Talk the part. God don't really care how dirty you are on the inside. No one even knows. You can hide it from God and you can hide it from yourself. It'll be our little secret. And the biggest thing that sealed the deal for Eve and that has sealed the deal for us is that you will be just like God. We still want to be God. We want to have all of the knowledge, so then I don't have to have faith. I don't have to surrender if I know it all. We want to be smarter, so I can keep on my path and I can lead and direct my own life. The devil is using the same tricks, and we keep falling for it. I don't want God. I don't even want to know God. I simply want to be God. This allows us to stay in control. This wanting to be God stops us from pressing in further to the place of the unknown with God. This is the big brick wall that stands between us and the Almighty. Will we destroy the wall and crush every brick or we just dismantle a few bricks so that we can get a glimpse of God and be content, but never be able to fully embrace him? With this temptation, the work of Satan is finished. He chuckles as we overemphasize, stop the sinful behaviors and look like you're saved. He knows that if we ever get to where we trust God completely and we can truly say, not my will, but thy will be done, then we have become like Jesus. And Jesus was the one who defeated him. Jesus' surrender to God snatched the keys out of Satan's hand. Remember, at the name of Jesus, the devil trembles. He remembers what happened when Jesus stepped into his kingdom and rendered him useless. He knows how that felt. He knows if we truly become like Jesus and embrace Jesus, then he becomes useless in our lives. He knows that God is greater than him. This is why he needs us not to get it. He needs us to be scared, mistrusting, and self-important so that we keep our distance from God. 
When we go into true praise and worship, we set the devil in a panic. Our cries to God, our faith in God, our surrender to God makes him feel like Jesus has already returned. So every time we worship, we mess up the devil. He goes into a fear mode that maybe God truly is here now. And my end is here. And hell is about to be my home for forever. Because remember, he doesn't really know all the difference between us praising and entering to that presence and us making that call to God. It sounds like the same trumpet when he's coming back for us. That messes him up. So he keeps us from that. Do the running, bucking, faking, do all that. Because I'm content with that. Y'all don't scare me. That's why he can just sit in the house. He coming to church comfortable. He not even uncomfortable. He's like, oh, this is my home. Feels good. Yet with all of this, we still will not believe. We still sit there and just make it all the devil's problem. Not that it's our problem. The devil already did his trick. When will you dismantle the devil? Let's look at John 12, 39 through 43. It says, first they wouldn't believe, then they couldn't. Again, just as Isaiah said, their eyes are blinded, their hearts are hardened, so that they wouldn't see with their eyes and perceive with their hearts and turn to me, God, so I could heal them. Isaiah said these things after he got a glimpse of God's cascading brightness that would pour through the Messiah. On the other hand, a considerable number from the ranks of the believers did believe. But because of the Pharisees, they didn't come out in the open with it. They were afraid of getting kicked out of the meeting place. When push came to shove, they cared more of human approval than the glory of God. Be careful when man is bigger than God. Be careful when you willingly stay blinded because sight may upset the apple cart. Remember Isaac and him choosing not to acknowledge the deceit of Jacob. Jacob finally tricked him too. Why choose blinded eyes to harden heart in deaf ears? Go to Isaiah 42, 18 through 23. It says, pay attention, are you deaf? Open your eyes, are you blind? You're my servant and you're not looking. You're my messenger and you're not listening. The very people I depended upon, servants of God, blind as a bat, willfully blind. You've seen a lot, but you looked at nothing. You've heard everything but you listen to nothing. God intended out of the goodness of his heart to be lavish in his revelation. But this is a people battered and cowed, shut up in attics and closets, victims licking their wounds, feeling ignored and abandoned. But is anyone out there listening? Is anyone paying attention to what's coming? The plan of Satan is so clear. 
we have all the knowledge sitting on our laps and the Holy Ghost residing in us. And God is willing to give us revelation from his heart. But Satan has convinced us that God's motives are not pure. That we are pure and we're all knowing. This is why we can read and hear the word, yet never absorb the truth or be able to discern falsity. Eating the forbidden fruit really made us blind, deaf, and dumb, but we think we're smart. Yet as we know, God is not going to leave us to ourselves. He does have a plan. The devil knows he has a plan, but he doesn't want us to hear it and see it. And the biggest thing of how he tricked Eve was that he, he made her think that God's motives weren't pure. That God is not really going to do you well. That him telling you not to eat the tree, that was just his devices of trying to, to pull you down. And it's the same thing we feel about God. We don't believe that he's for us. That his plan is going to prove to be of good and not evil. We hold on to the fact that God ain't on my side. He's trying to punish me. He's going to get me and he's just trying to send me to hell. The moment I mess up one or two times, I'm over. Can I really be forgiven? Can I really get back in right standing? Oh, you know God ain't going to do that much for you. Look at you. Why would the Almighty want you? And we hold on to that stuff, and that's the stuff that drives us from God. It's all a ploy of Satan. This is his big ploy. Because if he can get us there, if he can make us lose faith and not have faith, he knows that we cannot please him. And why would we get to heaven if we're not pleasing God? So 2 Chronicles 7 and 14 dropped in my head. And that says, if my people which are called by my name shall humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. So I had to go and get the backstory of that because we like to quote that, but we really don't ever take it much further than that. So 2 Chronicles 7, 12 through 22 is in response to Solomon's praying for his people and asking God to be in the temple that he was about to build. When he comes back in 7, this is God's response to Solomon asking for God's help. And you can read Solomon's prayer. It's the entire chapter 6. Very lengthy. I didn't feel like I should read that much. So you guys should go read it. Because he's really asking you, I don't want to bore you, he's asking for God to forgive his people when they sin. He's saying, I know we're going to sin, but could you be there to forgive us? If famine comes, will you send help for us? If it's because of the sin of the people, will you come and try to send something? Because we really will be sorry. But I don't want you to leave me. I want your presence to stay in this temple that we built. When he finished his prayer, fire came down, burned up the sacrifices, and the people rejoiced. In 2 Chronicles 7, 12 through 16 is what God told him. He finally spoke back to Solomon concerning his prayer. It says, one night the Lord appeared to Solomon and told him, I have heard your prayer and have chosen this temple as the place where I want you to sacrifice to me. If I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain, or if I command the locust swarms to eat up all of your crops, or if I send an epidemic among you, then 
if my people will humble themselves and pray and search for me and turn from their wicked ways. I will hear them from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. I will listen wide awake to every prayer made in this place. For I have chosen this temple and sanctified it to be my home forever. Another version says, my name is stamped on it forever. My eyes and my heart shall always be here. Listen to the words that he speaks. If mess comes your way, if a grabber set you up and took your stuff, and you feel like you're at the end, all you have to do is humble yourself. Acknowledge that you are nothing without divine help. Acknowledge that your will is not better than God's. Acknowledge that you didn't want his plan and will and then talk before your God in honesty and truth. Humbleness is not you just saying, okay, God, I'm humble before you. There's actions that have to be done to say, God, I'm humble before you. You give up control. That goes to your humbleness. Will you jump out the comfort zone and say, this is not where I'm supposed to be. Lord, I submit to you. As long as we're in control, we have no humbleness in the face of God. As long as our will is greater than God's, we have no humbleness in the face of God. It's not about you dropping on your knees and praying. It's about how you live. That shows how humble you are to God. When Jesus, which was called the most humble man that ever walked the earth, he submitted his everything to God. He knew that he could do nothing without his father. We do not live that way. We really think we can do stuff without God. We really think that we can get stuff going. We don't really need that much Jesus help. Oh, I got this. I don't need to go to him for that. Although he said to acknowledge me in everything. Yeah, we like, okay, Jesus, I got this one. I let you come in when it gets a little too heavy for me. Because we only go to him when it's too heavy. We don't go to him when it's light. That's us being in control. That means we're not humble. It says, and then search me out, seek me, knock on every door for me. What limits will you go through to find someone who you love if they go missing? Will you search for God like that? Will you turn up every rock? Will you walk the desert? Will you climb trees to gain an overview of the land for clues? And will you call a forensic team to examine what cannot be seen with the naked eye? Are you going through all that to find God? Are you seeking him with that kind of fever? Or is it just, okay, he didn't show up. We don't even call out sometimes. We just look. Oh, he wasn't there. Will you search for him? It says, and then turn from your wicked ways. Will you give up the things you love for the love of God? Because we love our wickedness. The wickedness feels good for the moment. We really have great affection for it. We love it more than we love God. Which is sad. Will you admit that you think that your sins benefit you and then be willing to relinquish them? 
Can you be honest and say, God, this works for me. Don't want to really let this go. But see, you got to be honest. And then you got to say, can you teach me how it will be better by me letting this go and giving it to you? A humble and a contrite spirit God cannot deny. Repent before God and he will forgive you. But we never really repent. Because repent is then turning from it. We just say, I'm sorry. We're like a bunch of little bratty kids. Just keep doing the same wrong thing over and over and over. I'm sorry, I'm sorry. But why do you keep doing it? You're not sorry. Because if you were sorry, you would stop. It's the same thing we do before God. And we think he should be impressed that I got the nerve to say, okay, God, I'm sorry this time. Now, after you do all of this, he will heal the land. This is why we have no healing. Because we don't do all the stuff in front of the, we'll heal the land. We just say, okay, heal the land. We quote the scripture, but we do not dissect the letter. God says, if, if my people will, then I will. He has requirements for healing. He has an order for freedom. Will you kill yourself and let God raise you back up? Will you sacrifice yourself on the altar and allow God to burn you up and then trust that he will put you back together again? He says he will listen wide awake to every prayer. The prayers that he will hear will not come from organized prayer meetings once a week, but from petitions that are associated with burnt offerings. So we coming in just a praying. Oh, Jesus, didn't you see us come to the prayer meeting? But we not praying about the stuff we need to burn up. We just giving a generalized prayer. Well, dear Lord, forgive us if we've, if we've done anything. If. Now, we know that we... <laughs> If. Not forgive us for doing X, Y, and Z, but if we've offended you, if we've done anything, then Jesus, please forgive us. And he's like, you, are you serious? And you got the nerve to say the same prayer every week? Can you change the lingo just a little bit? But we're like, why he not healing the land? You said it. I said that I'm nothing without you. That's the humble. That's as far as we're going. I seek in your face. Well, I read a couple of scriptures this week. Forgive me, Lord. If I've done something, forgive me. Okay, heal. And then we're mad at him for not healing. We're mad at him and saying, oh, see, I knew you wasn't real. I knew you wasn't about all this because we never read the letter. I don't want you just to talk. I want you to burn up the stuff that offends me. And it's the reason why he's burning it. Because once something is burnt, it is forever gone. There's no coming back. You know, you just shred something. You could perhaps put it back together. Get some tape. And we've been taping some stuff back up. We better than Enron. We done shredded stuff. And then we like, oh, no, let me get that out the trash. And let me, we can put this back together again. I can read it again. And we keep doing that week in, week out. But he wants it burnt to where that paper is just nothing. When do we get to where we burn it up? 
And I believe my husband's going to break that down a little further when he comes back. I'm going to leave that to him. Um, he goes on to say that I have chosen you and sanctified you to be my home forever. You are God's home. He's living in you. What kind of home have you prepared for him? Look where he is residing. I mean, really? This is some cluttered mess he is living in. Yet he says, I'm home. That's love. When you will stay home with somebody that has towed up the house and it's just ugly and nasty and dirty, you won't clean the toilets, the dishes are stacked, bugs are running, and he's like, it's my home. Because I said I couldn't leave you. So this is where you make me live. Wow. The name represents when he said he put his name on us. Because remember, we're the temple of God now. His name is on us. So the name represents an extension of self. The self of God is in you. We have been bathed in the name of Jesus, completely bathed in it. Yet we keep dirtying it up. Remember, you're not just dirtying you up, you're dirtying up God. Because remember, he can't leave. So whatever we partake in, we take him with us. We don't get to leave him at home when we go do our mess. He just comes with us. And he just sits there and watches us doing the stuff. Because he can't leave. He can't even disassociate from the crap we keep putting on him. He's got to sit there and be a partaker of the very thing that caused him and his father to be divided. When he said, why have you forsaken me? It was because he had to take on our sin. And we just keep making him feel. Can you imagine the anguish he felt on the cross at that moment when he got ripped from his father's graces? So every time we proceed in our sins, we are ripping him from his father's graces again. And we are making him feel that anguish from the cross all over again. Think about that when you want to stay in control. Think about that when you refuse to surrender your will to God and you say, I don't trust you and I don't think you're nothing. You are making him feel that anguish again. Was it not enough the first time for you? I mean, we act like we have this so much adoration for God. And we think he is so wonderful and so high. But we really don't. Because we keep abusing him over and over and over again. We wouldn't do that to our neighbor. We wouldn't do that to someone who we barely like. We wouldn't make him have to go through the same kind of pain over and over and over again. Yet we do it to God. And then we say, God bless me. Where's my blessings? Why can't I get out of this? Yet he blesses us. Yet he still loves us. And the degree of his love never changes. Because he can never love you more or less. 
He just loves. No matter how nasty you are, it's the same intense, extravagant love to when you are high on the sky and doing everything supposedly right. The love can't change. That's crazy. Because we do all this stuff with our love. You screw me up? Oh, the love gets drawn back quick. But God, he's like, can't do it. I just have to keep loving you extravagantly because it's just who I am. Yet we keep slapping him saying, no, you don't. Let me just rip you one more time. Hmm. We have him in us in the form of the Holy Ghost, and it is forever. So then he says his eyes are with us. The eyes represent gathering of information and therefore knowing. God wants us to know him. Remember, the spirit will lead us to all truth. God is truth. He has placed his eyes in us. Will you open them to see the glory of God that is in you? Why do you keep God's eyes blind? When he said, I've given you all the knowledge and the information. Already in you, it's there. All the knowing that you ever need to know, I've put in you. Yet we keep wanting the forbidden fruit. Because God's knowing is just uh, inadequate. The devil has more for me. The heart. The heart represents the center of emotions, reasons, and intellect. God's heart is beating in us. How he feels and thinks and reasons is in us. Why do we choose to run around deaf, blind, and dumb and unaware of our provisions? I do think a lot of us have missed the instructions. We want this great revival, but we don't want to do what it takes to get revival. We just throw that around. Oh, I want God to do something amazing. I want him just to tear this place up. But I don't want to do nothing. I just want him to do it. But for us to get revival, you have to have humility, prayer, earnest seeking of God, and repentance. Four things you must have before he's going to come in. That is humility, prayer, earnest seeking of God, and repentance. We must repent not just for the sins of behavior, but also the sins of the mind and the heart. These are the sins that we often hold on to and act as if we are in tune with God, yet there is no healing. So with all that, when he told us what is required, what he will do to heal our land. If you have something bad come your way, all you got to do is them four steps. Just four. Now, he could have gave us a lot more. Just four steps, and I'll heal you. Now, know that with a promise, he usually sends a warning. So here's the warning. And the warning I struggled with, literally struggled, actually went to sleep because I said I don't really want to do this. And I couldn't go no further. I was trying to create stuff that I could find another path after that. And I said, no, this is what you have to do. So here's the warning. 
Second Chronicles 7, 17 through 22. It says, ask for you yourself, and he's talking to Solomon. If you follow me as your father David did, then I will see to it that you and your descendants will always be the kings of Israel. But if you don't follow me, if you refuse the laws I have given you and worship idols, then I will destroy my people from this land of mine that I have given them. And this temple shall be destroyed, even though I have sanctified it for myself. Instead, I will make it a public horror and disgrace. Instead of its being famous, all who pass by will be incredulous. Why has the Lord done such a terrible thing to this land and to this temple, they will ask. And the answer will be because his people abandoned the Lord God of their fathers, the God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they worshiped other gods instead. That is why he has done all this to them. Many pastors have allowed their churches to lose favor with God because they chose to worship idols. They began to worship themselves, the money, the power. Like one bishop said, Many pastors need to look down at their feet and see the gold that's laid upon their feet. And I think a lot of pastors see the gold and they like the gold. Many pastors have encouraged their congregants to make them bigger than God. Many churches no longer have God's presence. And the sad thing is that the people stay out of loyalty to man, even though their spirits are no longer being fed. So if we go back to John 12 and 42, which I read, it says, on the other hand, a considerable number from the ranks of the leaders did believe. But because of the Pharisees, they didn't come out in the open with it. They were afraid of getting kicked out of the meeting place. When push came to shove, they cared more for human approval than for God's glory. God goes on with his warning that he would destroy the temple even though he put his name on it and sanctified it for himself. But he is going to make it a public horror and disgrace. We need to sound the trumpet. We need to force the presence of God in our buildings. If the people stand and only worship God and praise God, then maybe he will stay. But because we have given power to man, we follow man. We follow man as he begins to worship false gods and idols. Look at verse 22. It says, because his people abandoned the Lord God of their fathers, the God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, and they worshiped other gods instead, that is why he has done all this to them. And we always think of the worshiping being of idols as being, you know, something that we can literally see and this is what we're worshiping. But it's everything we put before God. Is it a worship of an idol? It is a false god that we have put in our path. We have many false gods. And we just worship and praise them. We've made ourselves a god and worship and praise ourselves. We got money, we got our, our class system, what people think of us, all that is bigger than God. And let alone all the sins we partake in. 
Because heck yeah, them bigger than God. So we are worshiping false gods and worshiping idols. And we wonder why when we come together, there's no presence. That God is not in the place. Because we don't really want to worship him. Why should he show up? And we won't even repent. We act like he should be okay with this. And my heart is heavy and very sad for so many Christians. We are going to be destroyed because of the lack of knowledge. We are going to be the ones coming to church week in, week out, doing the stuff that looks like good Christians, and we are being destroyed. And he's not going to just do it in quiet. He's going to make it a public horror. For everybody to walk by and say, I remember God used to be there. I remember you used to be one of them church people. And now you are disgraced. Disgraced by God. Because what does that feel like? We know how bad it feels when we get people to disgrace us and put us down. But for God? What is it when God destroys us? But remember... We are now the royal priesthood of God. So Hosea 4, 4 through 7. It says, don't point your fingers at someone else and try to pass the blame to him. Look, priest, I am pointing my finger at you. As a sentence for your crimes, you priests will stumble in broad daylight as well as in the night. And so will your false prophets too. And I will destroy your mother Israel. My people are destroyed because they don't know me. And it is all your fault, you priest. For you yourselves refuse to know me. Therefore, I refuse to recognize you as my priest. Since you have forgotten my laws, I will forget to bless your children. The more my people multiply, the more they sinned against me. They exchanged the glory of God for the disgrace of idols. We are responsible for our knowledge of God. Yes, pastors, ministers should introduce us to an amazing God. The focus should be just about Jesus and him alone. But we are to hunger and thirst after righteousness. That's what he told us to do. This is the stuff we must repent for. This is the stuff that causes God to destroy our land. Will you heed the warnings? Because the warnings are as big as the promises. We don't believe either one of them. Isaiah 8, 11 through 18. The Lord has said in the strongest terms, do not under any circumstances go along with the plans of Judah to surrender to Syria and Israel. Don't let people call you a traitor for staying true to God. Don't you panic as so many of your neighbors are doing when they think of Syria and Israel attacking you. Don't fear anything except the Lord of the armies of heaven. If you fear him, you need fear nothing else. He will be your safety. But Israel and Judah have refused his care and thereby stumble against the rock 
of their salvation and lie fallen and crushed beneath it. God's presence among them has endangered them. Write down all these things I'm going to do and seal them up for the future and trust them to some godly man to pass on down to godly men of future generations. I will wait for the Lord to help us. Though he is hiding now, my only hope is in him. Let us not get to the point that the presence of God becomes the thing that endangers us and crushes us. Let the presence be a good thing. But if we continue on our path, it's going to be the very thing that destroys us. God can crush us. And not because he hates us, because he loves us, because he gave us what is required, but we keep offending him. If someone offends you, you attack back. I mean, we know God is long suffering and all this. When do we think he's going to attack back? He's getting tired. We have more than any other of these people in the Bible. These Old Testament, we have literally God in us. And that's not enough. He figured, hey, I know just me, you know, perhaps being there, the ark, okay, y'all can't really feel me all the time. Let me then put my essence in you. And we're like, ah, oh, that's not enough either. Can you do a little something else? The cross didn't work. You should have came up with something better. Your plan was flawed. Because we still don't get it. Been here 10, 15, 20 years and don't get it. I mean, really, what's wrong with us? Because it's not God. Why do we not want to get it? Why after even knowing that we are failing, do we still not correct? I mean, do we expect God to just say, okay, I'll just give them until, until. And we praying, Lord Jesus, come. We don't need him to come right now. Because we may not go up. I know that's a great prayer to pray. And we, yeah, we, you think before you start saying that on your prayers. Even so, come. Oh, Jesus, wait a second. <laughs> I don't know if I'm all that ready yet. You don't want to get in the church lingo just because. Like I said last night, be careful of the stuff that you say. Quoting scriptures that you don't believe. Throwing all that stuff out there and you don't believe it. He may make you pay for your words. You said it. Stop lying. The beauty is that they had to wait for the Lord to help, and he was hiding. But he has given us instructions on how to find him. Will we heed the instructions, or will we, or will we be crushed by the warnings? It's our choice. We can choose to just do the instructions and get healed, or we can ignore it and get crushed. What do you choose? What fits better for you? Is your control and your, your way so grand 
that you're willing to bargain and take a risk and gamble with the crushing of God? Because maybe the crushing won't be that bad. I will read the instructions once again, and you shall decide. It says, then if my people will humble themselves and pray and search for me and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear them from heaven and forgive their sins and heal their land. That's all we have to do. That's it. But it's your choice. He's not going to make us. He's not going to force us. But he's also not changing his word. And the theme that's going between us seems, how it seems to be a lot of repentance. And maybe that's where we need to be. Instead of us always wanting God to do this and do that and show up and do that, maybe we, he's putting it back on us. And he's saying, when will you repent for your foulness? Stop looking for me to do everything. When will you be sorry for wounding me? When will your heart break because you keep breaking me? Why must I get crucified day after day after day? Because every time we sin and every time we offend him, we re-crucify him. We take him through that path all over again. The whipping, the tearing of his flesh, the blood pouring down. The scars and the, and the nails going in his hands and feet. Falling flat on the ground. Yet we say, you deserve it. We're just like the rest of them that crucified him. And we try to talk about them. I look at them, you watch the passing of Christ and you're like, wow, look at these people. Put yourself on the other side. Because it's what we're doing. Carry the cross, Jesus. I ain't helping you. Go on and get up the hill. Let me whip you a couple more times. Yet all we want is the goodness of God. We must repent from our hearts. A cry out that I get that I have hurt you. And that's where we must begin. And I'm finished.